You think you can do the intro? How's it go? How's it go? How's it go? Welcome to the sword and the trial. Welcome to Can you the be sword. trusted? You can't be trusted. Well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. You just play your part. It. What is Welcome to Sword and Trial? <laughs> this is a ministry of Founders Ministries. We're committed to the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of the local church. I'm Jerry Longshore. Welcome to the Sword and the Trial, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Tom Askell will never get to do this introduction. He cannot be trusted to do an introduction. Founders Ministries exists for what, Tom? For the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. You know about that because you've been doing this for I read, I read about it. a long time. I read it in a book. You've been a part of uh, Founders Executive Direct, El Presidente. Of El Founders Hefe. Ministries <laughs> since uh, since I was a wee little lad. Yeah, you were just a I, boy. I was I was a boy in diapers. I was non-existent. I was non-existent. Don't go there, Tom. We want to talk about this statement of affirmations and denials. The statement uh, on social justice and the gospel. Still, and at least when we're recording this, things are still hot out there. <laughs> yeah. Proleptically speaking, <laughs> we are working our way through the document, and today we want to talk about Article 2, the Imago Day. Can you read that statement of affirmation for us? I can. We affirm that God created every person equally in his own image. As divine image bearers, all people have inestimable value and dignity before God and deserve honor, respect, and protection. Everyone has been created by God and for God. Everyone's been created by God and for God. We've been created in the image of God. We're divine image bearers. It's because of that that uh, we have value. It's because of that that people are worthy of respect. And, boy, it doesn't take long uh, today to realize that people really don't treat each other with respect. It happens a lot, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, if you doubt that, just get on social media. And then you can find out. Yep. It's true, and and this this truth this is taught you know from the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis one. Uh, this should impact how we think about all people. I mean, even the worst of people, mm. you know, even the, even the most atrocious uh, crimes that have been committed by people, those criminals still should be regarded as being made in the image of God, and that doesn't mean they should not be held uh, accountable for their crimes, but. We should do so with a great sense of sorrow that this is an image bearer of our Creator. Imagine the tension exists when we try to apply this truth while also wanting to point out people's shortcomings, to correct them, rebuke them. <laughs> I think uh, I really don't like what Adolf Hitler did. I really don't. Mm. And so. When I hear Imago Day, um, you know, you start to feel the tension. Oh, he too is created in the image of God. Uh, how can I go about correcting him and uh, what he did while still showing him the respect that the Imago Day requires? Yeah, well, I think that uh, respect for the Imago Day means holding image bearers accountable for their crimes against their creator. And Genesis 9, this is clear, while uh, when God laid out capital punishment uh, in uh, the post-flood era, it was because anyone who would 
kill a man was killing an image bearer. Therefore, his blood would be required of him. So I do think that uh, it's easy to lose that, but even as we are administering or calling for the appropriate justice against criminals, we should remember that we are calling for justice against those made in God's image who, by their crimes, have sinned against their Creator. Yeah, and as we do that, we're to speak Christianly, right? We live in a day, uh, especially thinking of the uh, political atmosphere. There is all kinds of vile language that is thrown around. We have that on social media. We have that happening at the highest levels of our governmental uh, offices. Uh, how can we as Christians ensure that uh, our language uh, builds up rather than our language um, being full of wickedness? Well, one thing we need to do is be slow to speak. I think we would all be helped more by that. I know I certainly would. And to realize that uh, proper speech is that which accords with truth. And so we should speak truthfully. We should speak graciously. There are some things that we can say that we don't necessarily have to say, and it wouldn't be prudent or wise to say. Jesus did this. He said, I have many things to say to you, but you're not able to bear them now. Mm -hmm. So if the Lord Jesus put uh, filters on what he was to say, who are we to think we never need filters? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you've said this to me many times, probably because I talk too much, but I remember you saying, <laughs> you know, you'd say, hey, you know, I remember learning that. I just don't have to say everything that I'm thinking. And I remember that being very helpful. I'm like, boy, because I'm thinking it. It's ready to fire right out there. <laughs> but um, you don't necessarily have to say everything that's on your mind. Yeah, it's usually helpful not to say everything for me that's on my mind. I mean, I know that's true. Yeah. What about um, love hopes all things and mm. trying to find the good in people, trying to identify uh, signs of grace in people when you think about them being created in the image of God? Boy, it is God's grace to people that they're living and breathing. It's God's grace to people um, when they are sensitive to the things of the Lord. So as we think about correcting people uh, that have uh, done wrong, and even if they've done very wrong, uh, we can try to identify God's grace in them. Isn't that what the Imago Day is all about? They're yeah. created in the image of God. So there can be ways that we try to highlight that that could be helpful. Absolutely. And this is Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I mean, you imagine if we all lived by that all the time? Mm. Our conversations would be transformed because we would be treating each other with the kind of dignity and, and respect that becomes image bearers. That's right. In the denial section, the statement says, We deny that God-given roles, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, religion, sex, or physical condition, or any other property of a person either negates or contributes to that individual's worth as an image bearer of God. Do you... Uh, see people attributing uh, greater worth to people in these distinct categories? How does that happen? Oh, absolutely. And it, it's been happening throughout history. James warns about doing just that, showing uh, partiality to those who are rich. And we're not to do that. Neither are we to show partiality to those who are poor. And we do it all the time in our culture today. And we give certain status automatically uh, to those who are considered to be the elites in our society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we're, we're to recognize that 
though people have different gifts, different opportunities, uh, improve their circumstances by virtue of those gifts and opportunities in different ways, that that does not change the inherent worth as an image bearer of God. So we can acknowledge that, yes, this person has more money. This person has a higher IQ. This person can uh, dunk a basketball more effectively. Uh, that person can run a business better. But that does not mean that those qualities uh, translate into greater inherent worth before God as an image bearer. Yeah. This document has a lot um, to say about racism. There's a specific article about that. But when we think about racism uh, throughout history, this has certainly happened, right? Where mm. uh, people of certain races or ethnicities have uh, looked down upon others, um, taking away this uh, inherent worth and value from being created in the image of God. And this is an effort to say, wherever that's done, uh, in any direction, that is a, a wicked thing that is renounced in this statement. Absolutely. Right? So all white supremacy movements and ideologies uh, are condemned by a right understanding of the Imago Dei. Well, here in our second section, we want to talk about a book that we have both found very helpful, and that is The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. Uh, I've got in my hand here the Puritan paperback version of this published by Banner of Truth Trust. The Doctrine of Repentance. Um, boy, we need this truth um, clear in our minds today as there are uh, calls for repentance uh, very often, and there is the continual need for repentance. We need to understand the nature of true repentance. And in this book, uh, Watson has six ingredients, he calls them, of repentance. Here's what they are. Number one, he says, uh, repentance is requires the sight of sin. Number two, sorrow for sin. Number three, confession of sin. Number four, shame for sin. Number five, hatred for sin. And number six, turning from sin. He says you got to have these things if you're going to have repentance. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> were, you, were you expecting me to say something then? What do you think about that, Tom? <laughs> I agree. Love Thomas Watson. Uh, and he's, he's exactly right. There's more to repentance than just saying sorry. I don't know if you've had to deal with this as a parent, but we had to deal with it all the time with our kids, that uh, sometimes we would be lazy and a child would do something to a sibling and we'd say, say, say you're sorry. sorry, say you're sorry. And they'd say they're sorry and they weren't sorry. Say you're sorry, I'm <laughs> watching the news. <laughs> yeah, so there's more to repentance than just saying sorry. And there's more to repentance than just feeling bad. I mean, all of these elements, Watson has highlighted key elements that uh, we should recognize go into biblical repentance. So let's track it down. Number one, sight of sin. What do I need to see? What do I need to know in order to see my sin? You need to know your sin. You, know, you need to have a clear understanding of it, which means you need to know who the definer of sin is and where he has defined it, which means you need to know God's law. You need to know his commandments. God's the one who sets the standards of right and wrong. So... I may tell you that, hey, you know, uh, when you did this the other day, I didn't like it, and you need to apologize to me. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah. You, know, uh, you, you can be sorry that 
my feelings are hurt or that I don't like it, but there's no basis for repentance in that. Unless and, I really did something wrong. Yeah, I mean, if you're painting your house green and I say, hey, I don't like the way you paint your house. I don't like green color, and that's really hurt my feelings. And, uh, you know, I think you owe me an apology. Well, you, you might say, I'm sorry you feel that way, but you, there's no repentance necessary for that. Yeah, the law of God is essential to that. That's why we talk about it in our third section of this podcast. Because if you don't have the law, well, you're not going to be able to identify the sin. And if you can't identify the sin, according to Thomas Watson, you can't repent. Uh, once you see the sin, though, he says number two is sorrow for sin. I just yeah. I can't just see it. I, I need to um, genuinely be affected by it so that I'm sad that I've sinned. And as the Baptist Catechism says, um, it's being sorry for sin, hating it, and forsaking it. Because it's displeasing to God, I'm not sorrowing over my sin uh, because of the way it makes me look that I got mm -hmm. caught, uh, but because it displeases God. If that um, part of our sorrow is not there, then we don't have true repentance. Yeah, so often we look at uh, repentance on a, on a sociological basis or in a horizontal way. We, we see what it does to somebody else. Our sin has affected you or, or my actions have affected you. So I'm sorry for having affected you. And that's important, but that doesn't get to the heart of biblical repentance. We must see sin theologically. And this is Psalm 51. That's what happened to David. Mm -hmm. Against you, you only. Have I sinned? Well, David wasn't forgetting about Uriah that he essentially murdered. He wasn't forgetting about Bathsheba that he committed adultery with. He wasn't for, forgetting about the nation or his own children. All those people he sinned against. But whenever he was dealing with his sin theologically, all he could think about was God. And that is essential. Mm. Um, confession of sin. We need to uh, acknowledge our sin. Do we need to actually say something about it? Yeah, we need to say what God says about it which is what confess means. And so to confess sin is not just to admit it. It is to acknowledge and accept what God says about my sin. I imagine that people might stumble over the language of shame for sin. This is the fourth ingredient, according to Thomas Watson. What do you say about that? Yeah, I, I say shame can be a great grace. Uh, there is the grace of shame. Jeremiah 6 one of the accusations that is made about against the nation of Judah by God is that they had forgotten how to blush. Mm. And we need to learn to blush, to be ashamed of our sin. There's false shame, and we need to guard against that. But whenever there's real sin, there should be real shame uh, over that sin. Mm. Now, as we feel that shame over our sin, um, how does Christ... In uh, Romans 8, 1, there being no condemnation for us relate to this shame that you're talking about that Watson calls an ingredient of repentance. Yeah, it brings us back to our standing and our hope. Uh, we look at ourselves as we really are, and, and our, when sin breaks out and we're, we're brought to an awareness of it and brought to confession of it, brought to shame over it, it drives us right back to Christ, and we realize just how much he's done for us. He took that. So he bore our shame. He bore our sin, and I don't have to wallow in it. It doesn't mean that I live with that sense of uh, overbearing dread and sorrow and grief always because I'm a sinner. There needs to be sorrow and grief and shame over my sin, but that's exactly why Christ came. And so I need to be full of joy and hope and faith that he's taken that. So these things are not pitted against one another. They, they actually serve one another. I will never appreciate all that Christ has done for me any more than I appreciate the reality and depth and wickedness of my sin. And 
I will never appreciate the reality and depth and wickedness of my sin any more than I appreciate and see exactly what Jesus did for me in his life and death. Yeah. So I think about the shame part in relationship to what Christ has accomplished for us. Think of the shame as being the shame of a son when he has gone out and wronged his father in a, in a public way. Uh, but he comes home, he's still a son, but he has a sense of shame that he did this, bringing, bringing shame upon his father, upon his name or his household, not the shame of one who is an outcast. Right. You know, um, I think that can be helpful as we process yeah. that. And, and with that, the, the beauty and the blessing of repentance is that we don't have to live in that constant uh, sense of a low-grade shame. That's right. You know, we deal with it. We confess it. We acknowledge it. We repent. We trust Christ. We get up. We start over, and we don't have to keep going back to it. Fifth ingredient is hatred for sin. We're, we're to hate this. Think of Owen, oh, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That yeah. we should be um, vigilant in our repentance. I think if we saw sin as clearly as, as we should, as the scripture depicts it to be, uh, and as in those moments of clarity we get glimpses of, we would hate it. I mean, sin is opposed to everything good and right in us and for us. It's mm -hmm. opposed to the God who's redeemed us. Sin is what took our Savior to the cross. It is why he had to die. How in the world can we love Jesus and not hate sin? Final ingredient, Watson says, turn from it. I mean, you actually got to get away from it. Um, um, turn and flee to Christ. I think this is such an important book, an important doctrine. As we think about the health of a church, as people say, especially trying to shepherd the congregation, 2 Corinthians 7 can be mm -hmm. very helpful to this end to see what uh, godly sorrow produces as opposed to worldly sorrow, right? Exactly. Let me just read that. Uh, this is so good. Second Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Listen to this. This is how you can tell what true repentance looks like. Also, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. Paul saw in the Corinthians a genuine change, a genuine turning away from their actions that had been so grievous. In our final segment, we want to continue working through the Ten Commandments. Today, we're looking at the Third Commandment. And we find the third commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. It says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What's this commandment all about? It's about regarding God as God, recognizing that because he is God, he's holy, and therefore he should be approached and thought of and regarded as uh, nothing less than that, and we should approach him with real reverence. Uh, we shouldn't take up any of his being, any of his uh, attributes, any of his works in a thoughtless, careless way. And it means, uh, it certainly includes how we talk. So our speech 
can violate this when we blaspheme in our words with uh, taking the Lord's name in vain. But it's more than that. It can also be violated in our lives when we take the name of the Lord upon ourselves and we profane it by not regarding him in mm-hmm. how we live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we um, this commandment has much to say to us today as we think about our worship in the church and the way that we conduct ourselves in our home life or in our work life. I remember um, talking with my wife in years gone by about a desire for reverence in the worship of God and seeing in the broader culture ways that uh, we may be um, reducing that idea of reverence in our corporate worship, thinking very horizontally rather than vertically, saying we're coming to worship the God who is set apart, who is entirely different than us, who is uh, worthy of our praise, that we would come before him uh, in the way that he's prescribed, speaking about him, singing to him, praying to him in ways that uphold uh, his holiness. Yeah. Amen. So what about the reason that's attached to this third commandment? You can get away pretty easily today with taking the Lord's name in vain in multiple ways. The Lord will not hold him guiltless. Other people might, but the Lord won't. But the Lord won't. So does that mean that if you um, take the Lord's name in vain one time, you're driving in your car and you use God's name in a way where you're not treating it with the reverence it deserves, that uh, you will be eternally guilty? If you don't have a Savior, you will be. (laughs) (laughs) But if you have a Savior, you will be. He has taken that blasphemy upon himself. Okay. Are there other applications of that? strong uh, admonition attended to this third commandment? I think it's intended to engender a right kind of fear that is uh, becoming such a God Mm. that we should recognize that though others laugh it off and others make jokes about it and others may encourage us to live in blasphemous ways and not only not hold us guilty, the Lord himself will not hold us guiltless. And we have to fear God. Proverbs are full of that language. Charles Bridges, I believe he defines uh, the fear of God as this humble reverence in the child of God that leads him to humbly bend himself to obey the Father's will. Mm. That's That's a great picture of fearing the Lord, showing him the reverence that he is due. Booyah. Booyah. (laughs) Instead of amen. You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Askell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. To hear more from the Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org.